Hey y'all, welcome back to New Slang. I am music journalist Thomas Mooney. Hope everyone's week has been going really, really well. This episode right here is a real treat, and I think all of y'all are going to enjoy it immensely. It's with singer-songwriter John Randall. So if I started reading off all the collaborations and co-writes and records that John has produced, we would literally be here like the rest of the day. I'll just mention a few of them, though. He's co-written songs like Whiskey Lullaby and Tin Man and a bunch of others with folks like Guy Clark and Ashley Monroe, Natalie Hemby. Side note, there's a couple of really, really great Guy Clark stories in here. He's also produced records for Jack Ingram and Dwight Yoakam and Dirks Bentley, Pat Green and Parker McCollum. And he's worked with folks like Marin Morris, Emmylou Harris, Sam Bush, Lyle Lovett, Vince Gill, and so many more. The list just seriously goes on and on and on. And of course, we touch on a few of these during this conversation. So John also has a couple of new projects coming out in the near future as well. He has a new solo album, his first in 15 years. If you haven't yet, go check out the song Keep On Moving. He released it a few weeks back. And for me personally, it's been in that heavy rotation ever since. And then he's part of a little collaboration project with a few folks that you may have heard about. The Marfa Tapes by Jack Ingram, Miranda Lambert, and John Randall. It's out May 7th. We talk a lot about this project, his upcoming album, and a ton more, which I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. Let's get on to it. Here is John Randall. Yes, you know, where, where I kind of want to start off with is, you know, you just released this new single, Keep On Moving, and, yeah, you know, it's been 15, 15 years since the, the last time you released something that was in a form of, of a record. And, of course, this mm-hmm. is like, you know, um, going to be part of a record of some sort. Uh, I know you've had a couple of collaborations between then and there but you know for the most part this is like the the next thing that you're doing and obviously um that 15 year gap you've been doing a bunch of amazing stuff in between but for you like what was it that made you made this the right time to to do something uh you know under your own name uh, you know it's i mean i kind of i kind of don't know i can kind of guess with you uh because it's just, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm always making music. I'm always working and with, you know, I work with so many different people. I work in so many different situations and wear different hats. And over the years, you know, I would record some things um, just to, because I wanted to record something that wasn't going to be, you know, go on somebody else's record or, you know, just wanted to record something for myself. And after, yeah, a few of those songs would pop up where you go, man, I kind of want to just record this and have it recorded. Um, all of a sudden, I had enough songs to actually kind of have a project, you know? And and I think, too, for, for you know, the last record I did was for Epic Records, you know? It was still at a time where you had to have a label to get anything out there. You had to have some sort of distribution. It was just... Now that the it's the great you know it's the great wild west of music right now and and so obviously it was a little bit easier to to be able to release something you know without having to deal with you know a label wanting you to do a radio tour and do all the those things you know um, I could still do what I do and put some music out and also just people around me encouraging me I would play these things for 
people that, you know, the, my artist friends that I work with, you know, and, and people that are just, you know, family and friends and, and musical friends and artists and, and everybody be like, man, you, you should put this stuff out. People need to hear this. So it took a lot of people around me to kind of push me towards doing it and, uh, and, and some really good people in my camp making it happen because I'm not good with all the logistics and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's really kind of been a, a team effort of great support from friends. Yeah, you know, what's what's so interesting about that is you talking about kind of having these these songs stowed away, if you will, that you, you didn't necessarily think were going to be cut by someone else. I always find that interesting when, um, since, since so much of the music industry right now and, and forever has been, you know, getting co-writes or, or outside cuts and, you know, the if you look at any of these quote-unquote great singer-songwriters from Nashville who have a bunch of cuts under the belt, whenever they put out a record, it's almost like exclusively songs that weren't cut by others. And, um, of course there's a handful of, of tunes that, that are, um, both, but it's almost like they, they put those songs in their pocket and they're like, these are the, the songs that I feel I, I want to get out. Is that right. kind of the same for you right there? Yeah, it is. And it's really, too, it's songs that I felt like kind of fit the way. I mean, a lot of the mo- most of these songs I wrote by myself, or if it was a co-writer, it was like, you know, one really close co-writer that it, we still were writing something that sounded a little more like me. It's like I kind of had quit thinking of myself as an artist in that traditional sense. But as a writer, I kind of have a point of view. And so it it kind of there were those songs that I was like, I still like the songs that I was writing for myself by myself in my bedroom at two in the morning all those years ago. And when I started finding that guy again, those songs started happening a little bit. Um, So that, that was also a little bit of that is that this feels a little bit like my point of view in the way that I want to say things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why those songs connected with me to to kind of keep and 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 let people hear you know me doing my thing yeah because i i i I find like the whole co-writing world to be fascinating as far as like how you get these personalities into a room and you know create something out of out of thin air in a lot of ways Um, yeah but but i think like the thing that a lot of people don't really necessarily ever talk about is how as you said right there, you you felt like you've kind of you kind of lost where your voice was as as an artist, and that I'm assuming has to do with with just kind of writing for other people, um, or at least like going walking into a, a space knowing that maybe this song is going to be cut for someone else because you you're writing with that artist. Right. Well, like writing with artists, I I enjoy that, uh, and I I feel like I've written some really great songs. You know. Um, with artists that I've been producing or artists that I've just been writing with because I kind of know what my job is. And my job is to help them find their language, help them find their point of view and say what they want to say, you know, and we kind of go, you know, it's kind of like if you know, if everybody in the room knows what the bar is and you all have the same bar and you all think the same thing is good, you'll get there. 
you know and and when it's working and when it's buzzing and when it's right it some great songs come out of that um or sometimes somebody will take something you said said or you say and they'll twist it just a little and you'll go oh okay that's even cooler than what i was thinking you know and those those moments are great but um but yeah there's sometimes you just want to say what you want to say the way you want to say it and um uh, and i still love writing by myself sometimes you know a, a lot of the times um I, it it's cool when you have a goal like when i was working with dirks bentley on his uh bluegrass record up on the ridge record we conceptually knew what we needed for that record and so that was really fun to chase those songs down and try to find what we needed to say in those songs. I loved having that goal. Um, and, and for me, that's when collaborating is, is really, really fun. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because I think that, um, a lot of times some, or not a lot of times I'll say like sometimes someone will have, you know, most of the pieces of, of, a, of a song together or most of something. And, it's almost like they're needing to figure it out, figure it out. But if you have someone to bounce the ideas off of, um, that's where, where all the work can, can actually happen versus if they were just trying to write it in their minds, if you, if, if you will. And right. just sometimes like having that other person just to listen and say, yeah, yeah, that's needs to go there. Or like, nah, I don't know about that part. Not necessarily even thinking in, I guess like what I'm saying is a lot of times I think um, you sometimes think that when two people enter a room to, to write a song that most people think that when you walk out, both people are thinking, can I cut that song? And that's sometimes not the case. Sometimes it's you helping that other person out because like you, you're just a great listener. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, years ago, I remember playing some songs for Rodney Crowell, and I remember him going, you know, if you said and right there, it was like some real simple thing like that. And it was like, if you put and right there, then that would change this whole, and it would be like, oh, wow, that twisted the whole course upside down. You know, mm-hmm. like those little things like that, that you, you're so inside of the way you're seeing it that somebody outside can say something kind of just small and random like that. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And we need those. We need those people around us, you know, that help, help us get there. Yeah. I mean, it makes a, a lot of sense. Like I said. One of the things that I was reading through, and this is one of those things I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to ask you about this, is that you mentioned how, um, like, with, with the new song, you mentioned the, the Enneagram 9 thing. And <laughs> I thought, man, that is super interesting. And so um, I take it you're a 9. And then do you do you think that, like, that actually helps in, in – um, I guess like understanding what other folks are uh, helps in, in the relationships of songwriting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I have a couple of songwriters that before I had ever really known anything about the Enneagram and I'm still kind of learning things about it. And I know it's trendy and I know it's the thing right now, but I will say I had some other friends that started learning to identify personalities in a co-write and and learning strengths and and how to approach things and i will say not as much as a writer but as a producer 
I've really started learning to identify musicians and, uh, and how to negotiate in a room full of people when you're trying to like, when you're like, you know, manning the, <laughs> you're driving the ship, you know, um, it has come in handy there and working with artists too, understanding what number your artist is that you're working with and how to keep the flow going for them. Um, I have been really trying to, to utilize that in production more so than songwriting really. Yeah, no, I love that right there. Cause I mean, um, even if someone says, ah, I've never, I don't believe in that. If they just take the test, like they'll go, well, there's some truth to that. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, there, there is some, for me anyway, I, I like when I read through, when I read through nine and I'm somewhere in that tried nine, six, three, but when I read through it, I was like, Oh yeah. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> I do that. <laughs> oh, ouch. Yeah. But I, you know, I've always, it's funny before I ever knew anything about the Enneagram, I've always so many great, great musicians that I know they, they play their instrument like their personality is. I have said that for years. Like really great players that I know, like like guys that are eights, are just man, they are aggressive and their tone is big and they play really hard and they're they drive everybody else on stage to play really hard, you know. And then there's the guys that are the fives and fours that are real introspective and their solos are super interesting and soft and you know, it's like I've been for years I've I've been like, dude, that that guy plays exactly like his personality, you know. And uh, and so I've, now that I've been studying the Enneagram, Enneagram I've been like, oh, okay, yeah, man, he, that's exactly how that guy plays his instrument. Yeah, I mean, I think like that also just ties into you being able to go, uh, you know, not necessarily manipulate the situation of a producer of of a producing uh, a record or anything like that, recording a record, but you kind of it, it's obviously a tool to help manage personalities and like if someone's in a Mm -hmm. bad mood or or you know if if there's something that's like you know you know that's uh i don't know messing with the the mood of a of a of the time yeah just telling somebody you know trying to get somebody to change their tone and find the their their guitar tone you know like what's the best way to approach getting him to like change his guitar tone (laughs) what how do i need to like with an eight you have to go hey man your tone sucks can you like change guitars (laughs) and they're like oh yeah okay cool i got you you know but like with with other numbers you're like hey man i dig what you're doing i really do i'm just curious what like maybe like a les paul through a you know, basement would sound like, or whatever that, however you need to approach that. So you don't step on somebody's ego, you know? Yeah. You gotta be like the, the Phil Jackson. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's been, it's, it's been interesting to, to just kind of play around with that. Yeah, no, I I think it's, it's amazing. And I, I think there's a lot more artists out there who, who need to look into that. Um, I think there, there, there are out there, but, um, maybe they're just not doing interviews about it, but <laughs> well, I know, I know companies use it and the, and not just Enneagram, but other personality mm-hmm. studies. I, I have a, a friend I'll, I won't mention on, on the, on the company, but it's a huge company, very, very, uh, successful company. And, and he told me that they had done personality tests and then they, 
they used that. So if something, a problem came across his desk, he knew who to delegate that to. Oh, so-and-so handles that great. So-and-so knows how to do that really well. Um, and so it really helped their flow with, with, you know, delegating the work around to, for it. So everybody could use their strongest abilities and their strongest part of their personalities. And I thought, I mean, a lot of companies have been doing that for a long time. Yeah. And I heard, I saw an I Love Lucy not too long ago where they were talking about numerology, but they were talking about it like it was the Enneagram. Oh, really? She was like, I'm, I'm a three and I'm a one. And they were all naming their numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It's on an I Love Lucy episode. I had to rewind it because I was like, <laughs> did they just talk about the Enneagram on I Love Lucy? That's really cool. That's, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> so have you, have you been doing a, you know, like, can you say like what Jack Ingram is? Do you know, like, if you if you're oh yeah on what he oh is? yeah I know exactly <laughs> what Jack Ingram is. And 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 I even know that he lied on his enneagram test so that he wouldn't be the number that he knows he is. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Absolutely. Right <laughs> yeah, he's but he's yeah. He's funny. He's one of my best pals, man. We, you know, we've been working on a project with Miranda. I don't know if you know about that mm-hmm. project, but, but, uh, we, I turned him and Miranda onto it and she's made everybody in her world take the Enneagram test now because she wants to know what everybody is. So we were on our, on our last trip to Marfa together. We all, she had everybody do the test and we've been, we've been having a lot of fun with that with her as well. And and that's when we were giving Jack grief on his number. We were like, "No, you lied on your test. There's no way." Oh, <laughs> uh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard a, a few of the songs off of uh, the Marfa tapes, and that's obviously like, you know, that's to me that what I love so much about that is, um, you can tell there's going to be banter in between songs, and I I think that that is absolutely the coolest thing as far as giving the, 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 you know, the, the record a little bit more personality, give it a little bit more context to see what, what you guys are like in between takes and whatnot. Was that, was that always going to be part of the, the plan there or did, was it one of yeah. those things that just made sense when, while you were cutting it later on? Well, no, it, it really, I mean, that's the thing we, we went for. It was just like, this is just what we do and how we do it. We just turn the we just turn the tape on. We say tape these days, but we just hit record and uh, and start playing, you know. And we agreed to go. Hey, there's gonna be flat notes. I'm gonna play some wrong chords. Um, we might mess a lyric up. Uh, guitars are gonna be out of tune because we're sitting around a campfire in the middle of the night in the desert, you know. And um, but we're just gonna let it be that that real and raw and i man i i gotta give it up to my i mean it's easier for for me to say that but like i give it up for miranda because she's you know she's a she's miranda and she's our buddy and she's she's as real and and honest as anybody i've ever known in my life as an artist and that's what i let there's not a lot of artists that would let that happen you know there's no artists that would just say okay well let's go back and do it again because i don't know if i sounded great on there or whatever i mean she sounds great on everything she sings but uh 
I just, I, I got to give it up to her and Jack both for just going, yeah, let's do it that way. Let's just let this be what it is. And everybody gets to hear it exactly how it goes down, you know? And, uh, hopefully people will, will understand that about that project, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I can't imagine being someone like, especially like Miranda, where obviously she's, you know, a country rock and roll star and, having, I guess, that aspect of going, oh man, um, you know, I can probably do it better, you know, and I can do it better. And Mm -hmm. if you give me the time and just kind of letting loose and letting go of that, that part of the control, whenever you're in control of so much other stuff in your career. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I mean, that's, that's what I love about her, man. She's, she is, um, She's just bright. I mean, real good, really great artists. I mean, you know this, all these great artists that we're all revere. Well, so many of them were not afraid. They weren't afraid to fail. They weren't afraid, afraid to reinvent themselves, not afraid to go try something different. Um, and I, that's what I love about her. She's like, once she says, okay, let's do this, then it's full on, you know? And um, yeah, I think that's what makes her special. And Jack too. I mean, Jack's Jack, man. He, you know, you get, you know what you're going to get with Jack. He don't, he don't sugarcoat it, you know? And that's, that's what makes him so great in this little trio. You know, he keeps everybody honest. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. One of my favorite podcasts I've ever done is with, was with Jack and Bruce Robison. Uh, that was oh, years yeah. Back and, um, that was, such a, a fun conversation to be part of because in a lot of ways, when, when you have two people like that, you don't even have to do the talking. You can just no. let them talk. And that's what, where I think a lot of the magic comes from in those kind of conversations, just asking yeah. one question and letting them figure it out. Yeah. Now Jack, Jack is a, he's a, he's a great interview and he's so got so much, so much compassion and passion um, for music and, and that's what I love about Jack, man. And he's, he's one of the people too, that, that really him and Miranda both really encouraged me to, to put some music out for that reason. You know, just, just, he just, he's so passionate about what I do, which is, you know, is flattering to me because, you know, I respect what he does so, so much, you know, we've worked on, you know, I produced a couple of his records and, you know, it, it'd be real easy for me to take on that role of just his buddy that produces his records, you know, but he, he really pushed me to, to put this out and, um, and, uh, inspired me to like believe in it enough to let people hear it. So he keeps us, like I said, he keeps us all honest. Yeah. Well, you know what, like now that you mentioned, um, yeah, I'm, and I'm thinking about it right here. So, so like my favorite record of Jack's is that midnight motel. And, and you guys kind of do something on there with, uh, Blaine's Ferris wheel where he does that pre, like he, he does the story before playing it. Um, yeah, that's, that's in a lot of ways, kind of like what you, what, what's going on here with, with the new record. Right. Well, you know, the, the funny thing about the Blaine's Ferris wheel thing is so Chad Cromwell was playing drums. Chad's a legendary, uh, drummer plays with played uh, with Neil Young forever and played with uh, Dire Straits and played with uh, he's out with Joe Walsh and he's just he's played on a million great 
huge records. Um, and Chad had come down to Austin to play on that with Charlie Sexton and Bucca. And, uh, and, uh, he, uh, he didn't know that story. And I knew, uh, I wanted Jack to tell him the story before we played the song so that he would kind of understand what the song was about since he was playing on it. So I told Brandon Bell, our engineer, I said, Hey, Brandon, just be rolling. Cause I'm going to go ask Jack to tell Chad that story and I want to get it on tape. And, uh, and so he, he did perfect right on cue, man. We hit record and I said, Hey Jack, tell, tell Chad that story before we play the song. And he told the whole story perfectly. It was great. And then it was like, we were all right into it. I don't think Jack knew we were recording it, you know? Yeah. So, so I love that part of that record. And you realize how well written that song is after he tells the story, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, that's like the, I, every time I listen to that song, I, I listen to that whole intro, you know, I, it, it's yeah. just, it's, uh, in my opinion, it's like just as much as part of the song as the, the song itself. So yeah. Right. Uh, and like I said, like that's probably like my, I mean, you can't really go wrong with Jack records, but that's probably like my favorite record of his. I just think like the the songwriting is just, you know, just as as strong as as possible. Yeah, yeah, he had he was really on his game on on all that stuff, and it was you know it's funny he and I have said, I'm telling you, I can't tell you me not he and I sat on a bus drinking a bottle of whiskey, you know, two in the morning, listening to the old Willis Allen Ramsey record and listen to those Jerry Jeff Walker records and, and going, man, we, we need to make a record. Like those guys didn't care. They just turned on record and just started playing, you know, mm-hmm. like we had that whole, that's the way we saw our heroes making records kind of thing, you know, two in the morning, just, you know, up drinking and playing. So we talked about it forever. And finally we just, he's like, man, let's, let's do it. Let's make that record. It was like, great. And that every bit of that is live, man. We just, it's all on the floor. You can hear Charlie Sexton clicking his pedals every now and then in the room. Uh, if you'll notice, Chad Cromwell's not playing any cymbals. I think there's one, a one song that he snuck in there, but there's no cymbals on the drums, which gave it this really cool dry sound in the room because the vocals were in the room and the cymbals were just going to eat the vocals up because they were all sitting in the same room together. And so... I was just pretty proud of Jack for that too. Cause he just went for live vocals. He's like, yep. Just going to sing it live. This is how it's going to go, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was really fun to make that record. Really, really fun. Yeah. Well, going back to the, the Marfa tapes, mm-hmm. um, was that, was that done all at once or was that like over the course of a couple of times out there? You know, we did, I want to say, I, I can't remember. It's four or five trips that we've done out there. Um, and we wrote, we wrote a bunch of songs, just a ton of songs. And we had all these little bits and pieces and of them sitting around. And so what Miranda wanted to do was give everyone kind of the, the vibe of it. And I, I don't know if you've seen on uh, like YouTube, there's a little bit of footage of, there's a little bit of footage of some of the songs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it was like, we want to be able to see where we were when we wrote these songs, what the vibe is at that place that we hang out at there. Um, and so we, we went out there this last trip and then we, that's how we record everything. Brandon Bell brought two mics. 
Um, we had a camera guy there to get a little bit of footage. And, um, and so we just, we just sat there and recorded it, you know, just sitting, some of it's on the tailgate of that Bronco, some of it's sitting by the fire, but none of it's manipulated. It's all just straight up us sitting around in a circle playing guitars and singing just like the day we wrote them, you know? Yeah. And, and of course, like, you know, um, a place like Marfa out in the middle of West Texas, uh, underneath the stars, that's a very, very special kind of, uh, place. It, it creates a, a certain ambiance and a certain mood. Um, yeah. How, how yeah. important do you think it was that, that it, that it needed to be in a place in a setting like that versus, you know, anywhere else in the world? Well, you know, the thing, the, the way it all came about was, you know, I, I've been going down there for a while. I, I, it, it's a long story how I just kind of, in my own way, I know it's, it, I didn't discover more, <laughs> but, but, uh, for, for my group of friends and people in my world, I found I was the first person that had ever gone out there or even known it. Anything was out there, you know? And, uh, it was been years ago that I started going out there and just hanging out. I just fell in love with the whole, the big bend area, everything, you know, stay down in Terlingua and stay down in Marfa and stay up for David, all that stuff that's out there. And I can just drive around out there and, you know, for hours and with the window down, love every second of it. And I was always talking about it. I'm always, I'm one of those people that if I discover something, I think everybody else needs to know about it, you know, so I'll oversell it. And, uh, and Miranda was, man, she was going through, you know, a rough patch. She was all the tabloids, all that crazy stuff was going on in her world. And she called me and she said, I, I, I got to get out of here. And she said, why don't we fly down to Midland? Jack's playing a gig in Midland. Let's go pick up Jack and let's go out to Marfa. Cause you talked about it and I need somewhere to go. I was like, yeah, there's nowhere better to go. So we just went out there and, you know, the idea was let's go out there and write some songs, but the idea was also let's go out there and disappear and just, let's just hide out for a while, like a bunch of outlaws, you know? And, um, uh, and we did. And that, you know, we just started pouring our hearts out. Um, everybody was kind of going through some, one thing or another um, at that time. And so that first trip, that was the trip we wrote, Tin Man. That first trip, we wrote like seven or eight songs, something like that. Like we just wrote and wrote and wrote. Ended up staying two extra days from what we had planned. And, uh, and her and Jack both just fell in love with it. Like she just couldn't get over it. And so we went back again and was like, Hey, let's go again. And, and so that's kind of how that all came about was just running away to get away and ended up writing some songs. And then when we went back and I think for Miranda, it was just, gosh, we've got all these songs. The last time we went down and wrote, we sat, sat in the car and we, we went back and listened to everything we'd written on every trip. And it just, the wheel started turning about, gosh, you know, this isn't like a studio record. This is a record that people need to hear what these songs are about the songwriters sitting around playing guitars and singing them, you know? And, uh, and so that's when she decided we should just put it out just like it is. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm originally from Fort Stockton. So like, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know that area. Yeah. And I, I, what I like about it is, is, um, there's a little bit of me that, that goes, man, 
I'm glad like somebody else thinks it's cool <laughs> because yeah. like, forever growing up down there, I didn't think it was necessarily cool. And I didn't necessarily think anyone else was going to think it was cool. And, you know, then moving away, then you kind of go, Oh, you know what? That place is actually pretty special. And, um, you know, in my late teens, early twenties, I, uh, basically lived out in Fort Davis during the summers and, um, yeah, it's just a, a yeah, certain that's kind awesome. of vibe. Yeah. yeah, I remember, you know, growing up, because I grew up in, in, you know, Dallas, South Dallas, and mm-hmm. so I'm like a North North Texas kid, which is all plains, you know, there's there's one hill in Dallas, and the Belmont Hotel sits on it, I think, <laughs> I think that's the, that one in the big hill going up by 20, going into Duncanville, uh, those are the two hills, but it's like, I used to see that atlas, the, the Rand McNally atlas, that had the, uh, it had I think it had Santa Elena Canyon on the cover. And I remember always seeing that and laughing and going, why did they put like a picture of New Mexico or Arizona on the front of this Atlas? Like, you know, I never dawned on me that that actually could be something that existed in Texas. I just assumed, Oh, that's just like some stock photo desert photo. They put (laughs) on the cover of Texas, you know, cause everybody thinks, you know, we all wear hats and ride horses and live in a desert. Like the, cowboy movies so the first time i actually and i I remember i we would drive through there on the tour but i mean back when i was on the road years ago i I remember you know coming coming through there and and but it would be always at nighttime you know coming through el paso i don't i don't remember ever even like noticing that there were mountains in el paso you know right so it was just it was just funny like the first time i went down there and then was like oh my gosh like this is beautiful. Like I had no idea that that was, that that existed. And I was obsessed with it once I got out there, you know? Oh yeah. I mean like that's, if if you're going out there and you're on, you know, the tour buses going on I-20, you know, you're just stopping in at truck stops and, uh, you know, or I-10, I guess too. Um, and not really ever getting into what the, what the locals do, what the locals, how the locals live. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing I always say about like Marfa and Terlingo and all that. It's like nobody drives through there. You have to jump off I-10 and, and go to there and drive, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get there or, you know, cause you don't just, you just don't know it's there unless you research it and realize it's there or take a, take a back road and, and find it, you know, mm-hmm. but it's cool. It's beautiful, man. You, you mentioning the, the map, and pulling out the, the Rand McNally map that just put a flood of memories in my head uh, of being a kid and like uh, traveling with my dad and my dad owned a, a trailer company in Fort Stockton. We'd have to either go pick up steel in, in Dallas or we'd be hauling trailers to New Mexico or Arizona or these small ranches in Texas. And he would always ask me like to pull out the map and, you know, uh, put my two fingers on where we were and like, or where we were around and where we were going and like, you know, hold it up while he was driving in traffic. And I'm thinking now, like, I I don't know if I could have ever done that back in the (laughs) nineties or even like the early two thousands. Like (laughs) we just have the, the, the wonderful technology of just putting it in your phone and going. I know, man. I think about that a lot too. Cause we, I mean, when I was, when I was growing up in Texas, I was in a bluegrass band all through high school, you know, and we, 
we played festivals all over Arkansas and Oklahoma and Louisiana and South Texas and, and little, you know, VFW halls and stuff like that. And man, we, we were lost without that map and everybody knew how to read a Rand McNally, you know, like if you were the co-pilot, you were no good if you were getting car sick because we need you to keep your eye on, <laughs> on where that next highway was coming up, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's just funny to me. I don't even know if anybody, half your listeners probably don't even know what a Rand McNally is. <laughs> yeah. And like you, you, you pay attention to like the little numbers by the road because that's was how many miles. And, yes. And, and you, uh, my dad would have me count up these miles between here and there and it'd be like, okay, well, pull out the, the calculator. Um, that's also not on the phone and, <laughs> and figure out how far we need to go. And yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. I'm going to say, yeah, that we like, got, <laughs> go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was going to no, say, was, oh yeah. And <laughs> go ahead and say, you got it. No, you got it. I was going to, I was going somewhere else. You got it. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm going to, I was going to just comment saying, that not all those memories were great. A lot of them were like, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. it was my fault for, for not driving as a 10 year old. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, I gotcha. It was work. It was where you were working. I get it. Yeah. What direction were you about to go into? Oh, I was just gonna, I was just gonna tell you, I, me, me and a, a, me and some, uh, my manager and a guitar player got lost in Hamburg, Germany one time with my manager driving and we bought a map to try to figure out where we were going. <laughs> and it was as big as the inside of the car. It was <laughs> ginormous and everything was in German and we were, we couldn't even find the road we were on on the map to figure out where the next road was. It was the biggest epic fail of trying to drive to a gig in Germany but I just remembered opening that map up and now I think, Oh, well you would have had GPS. It would have taken you exactly where you needed to go. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's like the, like a cartoon right there. The map being oh, it as, was, big, as big as the inside of the car. Yeah. And it was that club that it was that club that the Beatles played in, in Hamburg It's a 39, 36, whatever. Sorry, Beatles fans. I, I can't remember the name, but, uh, but it was in the red light district. So every time we'd stop and ask for directions, people would start laughing at us and go, look at these, look at these Americans trying to find the red light district. They're lost asking for directions to the red light district. It's like, no, 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 we're playing. They're like, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> um, you know, I was going to ask about this because I'm a big fan. And I mean, obviously he's from, from out there too, but, you know, you, you got some rights with, with Guy Clark and, um, you know, he ended up cutting some of those songs. Um, mm -hmm. what was, what was it like setting across a, a table or across a, the room from Guy Clark? <laughs> the first time was really intimidating. Um, and I, I, I knew Guy through Emmy. I mean, I, it's funny. I've, I've got a really funny story, but it's a very long story about the first time I ever met Guy Clark. It's a crazy story. But uh, but years later, uh, I got to hang out with him and, and Susanna Moore with uh, when it, when I was working with Emmy Lou. And uh, and so, we, you know, I got to know him better. But when he finally said, well, why don't you come over to the house and let's write let's write a song, you know, um, 
I was obviously very intimidated because I was a really young rider and, uh, and, uh, and it was interesting cause I wasn't, I kept feeling like it, and anybody that's, that might hear this, that's written with him will know exactly what I'm talking about. He, he, we would write, write like little pieces of things, like two or three lines here, two or three lines. And then he, we would think for a long time and then, and there'd be all these pieces of paper laying on the table with little pieces of lines and i kept thinking oh my god man i'm we're not going to get a song he doesn't like what i'm throwing out here like i kept feeling like we weren't we were not going to get a song you know and then who just you know takes a big hit off his joint and he he starts piecing all these pieces of paper together he's like okay there's the first two lines and here's the next two and he it's like he he was such a craftsman that that's how he wrote songs too you know like he was building it here you go that goes there this goes here here. now sing that that's the first verse now sing that okay that's okay that's the course and he just like laid it on and then all of a sudden it was just like oh my god we wrote a song it's all right here like we spent all this time and i was and it was interesting because that was just that's that's one thing you learn with co-writing with any co-writer guy clark or anybody is like everybody's process is a little bit different everybody's trying to get to the same place but the way they get there is a little bit different you know and uh and uh and then i was like oh my gosh man we wrote a song and it was great once i understood kind of how he worked um i kind of knew how to how to roll with him when we when we would write but he definitely was I learned a lot riding with him. I learned a lot just um, about simplicity. He he had he had a handful of rules that I always thought were really interesting, like never make one person better than the other. If it's a breakup song or something, you can never make one person the villain. Um, you know, one of the best lines, and it came when me and him and Gary Nichols when we were writing uh, some days of the song "Write You." Um, there was a line that he had said that, and I, I'd give anything to remember this line because, and Gary would too, but guy had this line that was a great line and we were trying every way to shove that line into the song. And it just, it just wouldn't get there. And he just said, well, you know what? Sometimes you got to get rid of the best line in the song to, to get the song to go where it's supposed to go. And then, and when we pulled that line out, we finished that song in like 30 minutes, you know, and I thought that was a really great lesson about not being too precious with a great piece of poetry if it doesn't belong in that song, in that body of work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's very understandable to want to keep that in because, um, you know, if, it, if it's, if it's the best line, I know like a lot of young songwriters, they, they maybe also have trouble with, um, with keeping a line in just because it sounds cool, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's a tough, that's, that's a tough thing too, because, and, and there are those songs. I mean, I won't lie. I love writing songs sometimes that are a little disconnected because it is a lot of just cool. That's more like when you're writing cool rock stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like you can get away with that stuff or it's so inside that you're not sure anybody's going to really get what you're saying but it's kind of cool. But when you're telling a story, you definitely don't want to leave somebody too stranded. You know, language is a really interesting thing with, with songs for me. That's what I'm always chasing is 
like I think Steve Earle is a master of telling a story and finding the language to tell that story. It's like if you listen to the way that he tells the story, the character always has a certain way of talking. Delbert McClinton does that too. So does Billy Gibbons. Like those those guys come out of that blues world and they have all this cool like vernacular mm-hmm. that totally is the guy singing. Talks like that, you know. And and I I think that's you know to me that's always the challenge is what's the language that needs to tell this story the best. Yeah, finding that that character's voice as far as like yep. the way he talks. That's that's a really interesting thing right there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, and it's a, it's a study. I mean, there really is the especially there's not a lot of story story songs, but when you're telling a story song, which are probably the hardest songs to write maybe, I don't know, that's probably debatable. But to write them as well as guys like Steve Earle write them is really um to me, it's hard to nail that down and make your story make sense. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of probably the way journalism approaches writing something, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm losing my hair, but uh, <laughs> trying to like figure out that narrative and what you're, I think, right. you know what, maybe this is something that you can relate to um, because I, I find this to be the biggest problem in anything that I ever write about is when I like something so much and I want to say like 10 things about it and I don't know how to begin. I don't know how to like put those in order to say them. And I just kind of want to say them all at once, but there's obviously no way to say that all at once. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. Like where do you start? What's the best way to thread this and then put a bow on it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You, one of the things that you said j- there just a minute ago about Guy, as far as piecing that song together, having those strips of paper out, um, what that kind of reminded me of was um, obviously like him being, you know, making guitars and stuff. And n- that's not necessarily like, you know, um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, he became a better songwriter because he made guitars. But do you think like that had a, an impact on his songwriting uh, or his approach to, to, to songwriting to, to art? Well, you know, possibly. And, and I, I think, you know, Sean camp and, and Verlin and, and Daryl's probably spent a lot more time writing with him than I did. I know they did. Um, but I always perceive that that is, was guys personality and, and not to go to the Enneagram thing, but I'm just saying he, he played and wrote songs and like a craftsman that he was a painter. He was meticulous about building guitars. He was meticulous. I mean, watching him roll a cigarette, he was meticulous about rolling a cigarette. His joints looked like cigarettes. They were perfect, you know? So it's like, he was like that. He And so I think with his songwriting, he was like that as well. It was, it was, they call it a craft. And to guy, it was a craft. I mean, he, crafted a song the way that he did everything else and and to me that's all connected just from the outside looking in yeah i I find that really really interesting as far as what because i think a lot of times especially now 
a lot of songwriters just think of themselves as songwriters or as musicians. And there's a lot of artists who, who have, who do other things and they may not be as good at painting or, you know, or building guitars or, um, writing a screenplay or whatever the case is as, as they are as at writing songs. But I, I think that sometimes that way of thinking limits what, what they're capable of doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, I think you're right. You know, it's funny. I've got, I have a friend that it's a massive hit songwriter. The guy's written just, I don't know, at 30 number one hits or something, but he's also a bass fisherman, tournament fisherman. And, and, and if people ask him to go, what do you do? He tells them he's a turnip, turnip, uh, a tournament fisherman. <laughs> and, and he means it, but he's also like one of the biggest hit songwriters that ever wrote songs, you know? And I love how it's like, you can have a couple of things in your world, you know? But what what are you the best at? I guess is what you're asking, right? Like what what are you what what pushes you to be the best at what you do? Yeah, well, I mean, but I I think those other things help can help make you a better whatever that is. Yeah, you know? no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, because, you're right. I got yeah. Because it's it's one of those things where you know, like uh, just seeing it from a different approach, maybe or. You know, I, I think a lot of times, um, you know, it, it's maybe that that time that, um, not, I, I hate to put it as in like you're on in autopilot, but like when you're just able to think about stuff versus um, where you're really writing that song out or whatever the case, you know. I think like mm-hmm. sometimes people think of songwriting as only when you pick up that pen and the guitar or sit down at the piano and you know, a lot of times art comes way before that. The process starts. Way oh, before. right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you might even, yeah. And the things you do just in your daily life, it, I, you know, being a great listener or just hanging out with people or sitting in a bar and here, you can hear somebody say something and that sparks an entire thought process for you that eventually you take into a writing room, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, it's funny to have a friend that is just one of the most badass guitar players that ever played a guitar. And, and there's, there's a mechanics, you know, he's big into golf and the mechanics of golf. And he relates that in the way that he approaches playing and he's just a master at his instrument. But it's it's interesting because it's like it's the opposite of Jerry Garcia, which is just kind of loose and 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 he's incredible too, you know. And but it's loose and it finds its way, and he just kind of he's looking for it, and he's he's you know free forming, and Willie's kind of that way too, you know. And it and I find it interesting because maybe that's like you said, it's like the uh, the way that you approach other things in your life or what you bring into your art as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, this one kid from Texas that you know really well, Parker McCollum. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like uh, obviously that last EP is really, really great. But it, to me, what I see a lot in that EP is um, some of those like early promises that you you, you saw in uh, his early work. 
um, you, you just see like, I guess some of those roots or those seeds where you're like, uh-huh. Oh, you know, like, Oh man, he, he's going to be able to do something. This is cool. But like, there's going to be something cooler ahead. Um, and I think like Hollywood gold is at least the, the beginning of that. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate you saying that, man. I, uh, you know, I kind of, Randy Rogers, uh, and, and Ben Vaughn at, uh, at Warner Chapel and Jesse Vaughn at Warner Chapel, um, kind of introduced Parker and I, and I think we didn't know each other, but I, I know, I mean, I knew what was going on with him and, and I think he knew of my work as well. And, and I think everybody kind of put us together cause they felt like we would get each other and they felt like, you know, he's about to do a thing in Nashville and I'm a Texas guy and I've worked with all those guys, but I also know how to navigate my way around the music row thing and dealing with labels and how to, how to help him make the kind of thing he needs to make that can, you know, get to a bigger platform without losing any of our roots, you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's a big, big thing to, it's, I mean, it's a lot of weight on my shoulders to take that on. Cause I know his audience. I know, I know my Texas people. I know where he's coming from and he is such an artist. He's such a great writer. His thing does not need to be messed with at all. And so that's why I wanted to be really careful about what, where, where we went on this, you know, this project and, um, really, truly, man, just, you know, all we're trying to do is what I try to do when I'm working on a record, any record is what is it conceptually? I'm I'm not saying like, let's make Pink Floyd the wall, (laughs) but, but when I say conceptually sound wise, what, what band do we need in there? What, what group of cats do we need in there? What, what's our anchor song? And then how do we build off of that sound so that we're not just, throwing stuff at the wall and and that's kind of it's been that's been kind of our challenge is you know navigating the way that nashville does things and the way that we like to do things you know and i think we i think we're on it i I appreciate you saying that about hollywood gold because i feel like it's a great body of work for him and uh and I, we're just trying to keep that going, just trying to keep that momentum and that that sound and finding out what that sound is for this project, you know. And uh, he's great. I mean, he's that's the thing is I I really been begging, you know, and he's smart. He's got it. He's got it. And he gets it. Um, but it's like I always say, you know. What if what if when what if when the first time someone heard heard Bruce Springsteen they said well hey let's 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 get him in Nashville and make him write with all these hit writers you know what would have happened <laughs> so it's it's been uh, you know I uh, I I think we've all pr- kind of done a good job at like let's just make sure Parker is Parker and let's just capture it without messing with it too much and so. You know, and a lot of it was too. I, I, I watched his live shows, um, and wanted to kind of build off that what his what his band is live and what that sound can be live. You know, how can we translate what we're going to do here that that's kind of the same instrumentation as what you're doing because that's a sound. You know, 
So, um, but I love working with him. He's, he's a, he's just a fantastic artist and a great guy. Great guy to be in the studio with. Yeah. I, I think that like a lot of times, um, folks can dismiss Parker just because, you know, he's a good looking guy and, you know, got that Nashville record label deal and all that kind of stuff and and not realize that, you know, the guy actually also knows a lot about great music. And he, you know, I've had conversations with him about Rodney uh, Crowell, you know, and Mm -hmm. like, you know, him being kind of a diehard uh, when it comes to Rodney Crowell records. And, you know, you can't get any more real than Rodney Crowell, you know. No, no, man. Parker's roots are really deep. I mean, he he was singing a Jerry Lee Lewis country song to me the other day. I think he did it on the Opry the other night. Like, and I love that about him. Most new artists would never do that. I mean, I don't know a new artist that would walk out there and sing. Uh, what was a uh, what was a thirty nine holding everything you can? Whatever he sang that Jerry Lee Lewis song. Just country is you know, dirt. And that's what he, that's, what's going to make him a great artist is that he's not afraid. He's not afraid to do that stuff. He wasn't afraid to work on a record in Nashville and he's not afraid to tell Nashville, Hey, this is the kind of record I'm going to make, you know? So let's, let's keep rooting for him. You know, we need, we need him. Yeah, I think so. I think there's, there's some, some Texas guys right now that are doing some cool things that, um, that are all in that, that age gap, that age, that age range. And they're going to, um, they've all made stuff in Nashville the past year or so. And yet they're, they're still going to have that identifiable voice that made them, you know, be, uh, be famous or popular or whatever, be on notice, uh, in the first place. So I think it's, it's a good thing. Well, most of them are working with fellow Texans. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the thing you got to realize. There's a bunch of guys up here from Texas that are producing records, you know, and, mm-hmm. and working with working with our buddies back home. So it's kind of we're kind of infiltrating it a little bit. <laughs> okay, so I got a, a question to ask about that then specifically. Yeah. <clears throat> so one of my buddies was telling me about. I guess he had he had moved up to Nashville, and uh, within that first month or so, he had been reading like the first Billy, I guess, like the Billy Joe Shaver biography or something and Mm -hmm. he was saying how back then uh all the texas guys ran together and all like the georgia guys ran together and all the whatever pockets were like you just ended up like Uh hanging out with those people um where you're from even though you're all in nashville and if maybe you were back home you would have been doing the exact same thing um is that do you feel like there's something some truth to that too as well as not necessarily that you know, you're not going to hang out with anyone from any other state, but that there's a little bit of that comfortability uh, with, with just knowing that, oh, this guy's from Texas too. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny too because, man, you know how Texans are. <laughs> we find each man. I'm serious. We'll find each other in a crowd, um, and and I and I, I, it's true. The Georgia guys kind of they have their crew of people and you have everything, but Texans seek each other out and and we kind of look after each other. You know, like. Somebody comes to town that's new. We kind of, it's like, okay, hey, hey, buddy, here's the deal. Here's how this rolls up here. If you need me, you call me. Like we kind of find each other, and it's a, it's kind of cool, really. Um, but yeah, we we all hang. I mean, you know, it's when I 
so I moved here, I moved here and I moved to Nashville in 1987. And part of the reason I came up, well, one was because a buddy of mine that had moved up here had, a, had us a gig lined up. And, and so I, I came up to check that out and, and kind of hang out with him. But, you know, I was a bluegrass kid mostly. And there was a handful of us bluegrass kids that all moved up there because, because Ricky was there, you know, Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush, Bela Flick, all the new grass revival guys like the station Inn was the famous bluegrass joint. So if you were a bluegrass guy, you kind of were going to go there in North Carolina or DC area, you know, or go out to the West coast and play hippie grass. You know, that was kind of your options for that. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, Guy was in Nashville, Towns was in Nashville, Steve Earle was in Nashville, Rodney was in Nashville, Delbert was in Nashville, Lyle was making records here, Nancy Griffith had moved up. Like everybody, <laughs> so many of those guys before me moved to LA and then they moved to Nashville. Like Guy moved to LA, Towns moved to LA, Delbert moved to LA, Gary Nicholson moved to LA, and then everybody moved to Nashville, you know? And so I think it's because there wasn't the same kind of scene, you know, that blew up like when Jack and Pat and all the Bruce and those guys, all that was happening, you know, that happened after I'd already moved up this way. So part of it was, I thought that's what you did. You know, that's where it was going on. I mean, the guys there and Towns is there and all the bluegrass guys are there. Amy Lou Harris is there. And that's where, that's the crew of people I want to be hanging out with, you know? And that's what I did was I moved to town and I found all those people, you know, <laughs> it was like, okay, who's the people I want to hang out with. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of what the scene was when I got here too, was that crew was all hanging out together. And Billy Joe was up here too. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I remember there was this cool little funky bar that would stay up and way after hours and you could stumble in there at like four in the morning and, guy and phil kaufman and prine and towns everybody was hanging out down at this little hole in the wall when i moved to town and it was just kind of cool to see see those guys you know yeah well i mean that's one of those things that maybe that maybe um i don't know like like kids these days and i say kids including myself don't necessarily realize is that like there was not necessarily the the infrastructure here in Texas to support a, a, a scene where you could travel and tour quote, quote unquote, tour Texas back then. Right. That, right. that took no. a lot of, um, mm -hmm. you know, years of, of, you know, kind of getting some radio and, and getting bars and gigs that, that you could play that are whatever smaller than Billy Bob's or, you know, something like that, you know, where, um, I remember talking with, with Wade Bowen about, how one of the things that he thought um, kind of put him ahead was was that he had his own PA system, and that like you know so many so many of these places in Texas you could play, but you had to bring your own PA and you had to bring your own equipment and like sound you know and you had to hire the sound guy out to to run the sound on your stuff and how just being able to have that was just a little bit of an of a of an advantage to being able to play around uh, town and around Texas. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I can totally, totally see. I mean, that's how it was playing when I was, had a bluegrass band back home, you know, it's like we had a, we had a banjo player that had a, 
PA system in a van mm-hmm. <laughs> and we could go set up on a, on a flatbed trailer at a, at a County fair and play, and, you know, and we, we were kind of self-contained. So I, I can totally see that, but you know, I think for too, like for some of our heroes, uh, you know, for guy, I mean, I, I know that, you know, part of the deal was he was, he got a, a publishing deal in LA and they were like, well, you can move to New York or Nashville. You know, we'll pay $75 a week or whatever it was, something like that. And I think Christofferson was like, he was in Nashville still at the time. And he was like, man, you got to come to Nashville. They're, they're loving hippie poets here right now, you know? And, uh, and so that's how he ended up going from LA to Nashville was, you know, just trying to make money writing songs um, at that point. Um, I don't know. He, I'm not even sure he was making records yet, you know? I could be wrong on that, but, but yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of the deal, um, was we, when I moved to town, that was the way it was like, that was, that whole crew was running together. And, uh, and so you try to figure out where those guys were hanging out and that's where you would want to go hang out. (laughs) And it was usually, and you didn't want to try to keep up either. That's the other thing I found out the hard way. (laughs) How do you, how do you, I hate to say the word infiltrate, but how how do you even break into like meeting one of those guys like back then when you're, you know, just a, a kid essentially? Well, uh, for me, I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of skipped the line because, you know, when I was 20, I guess I just turned 21 when we were doing, when I joined Amy Lou Harris's band. And so I got to hang out with all those people when I was really young. And, um, and so that's kind of how, that's kind of how I, I got there was, you know, just through, you know, we played gigs with all those cats and, you know, Emmy had hangs at her house, Super Bowl parties and New Year's Eve parties. And she'd have, you know, Guy and Susanna and, and Jim McGuire and, and, uh, you know, Harlan Howard and all those guys would be over at her house hanging out. So I kind of got in, kind of got in early on that. Now I did meet guy. I told you I wasn't going to tell this story, but basically I met guy when I was 19. It was my first gig when I moved to Nashville. I was playing with uh, Holly Dunn, uh, who was, I think she was out of San Antonio. She had a deal on Warner brothers mm-hmm. and, and we went to Europe and I don't know how I ended up hanging out with Sonny Curtis at 19 years old and trying to keep up drinking wine and whiskey with those guys. But it was, it didn't end well, but basically guy walked off stage. We were watching guy and he walked off stage and he didn't know me from Adam, but he just looked at me and I had my guitar and he goes, let's go pick. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to get to go pick with guy Clark, you know, and Sonny Curtis. So I grabbed my guitar and guy goes, where's your room? And I go, well, it's over at that little hotel. And he goes, all right, let's go. So we start walking through this little village across the street to the to this hotel. And on the way, he picks up Billy Joe and Eddie Shaver, Steve Young, and Johnny Rodriguez. <laughs> <laughs> and we all, and then about twenty other people. And we come piling to my room, and I'm rooming with our drummer. And bless his heart, he was in bed. And guy opens the door, flips the light on, and goes get up. We got to move those beds. 
and so my drummer, God love him, man. Our drummer has to get up. He's getting his clothes on while all these people are pouring into the room with coolers and wine bottles. And guy starts. He tips the beds up against the wall, leans them up from the bottom up up against the wall, and starts rearranging the furniture so that we can all sit in a circle and play songs. Well, by this point. <laughs> I'm on my balcony throwing up off the balcony (laughs) (laughs) and I missed the entire party. Like all these guys in my room, like all these legends in my room. (laughs) And, uh, and so what's funny is fast forward, like uh, years later, we're sitting around, um, at Emmy's house and, and guy starts telling that very story. (laughs) Cause he was talking about, we're talking about Eddie Shaver and, and he starts telling that very story but he doesn't realize that it was me. So, and at some point I'm just listening to him tell the story from his point of view. And it was exactly how I remembered it. And he goes, yeah. And I don't know who that poor little son of a bitch was and whose room it was. He was out there throwing up off the balcony all night, but that was a hell of a night we had with Billy Joe. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, I was like, Hey guy, I said, I said, that little son of a bitch throwing up off the balcony was me. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, man. And he, that was our, that was one of our funny things forever. Cause it blew his mind that that was actually me. That, that was the guy he remembered. Didn't know who that kid was, but that was kind of our, our fun story for a long time. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, man. <laughs> and I look back though, I tell you what, I think back and I go, there's there was a real blessing in that because my songs were not good enough to play in front of those guys at that point in my life. Like I think back of the song, the couple of songs that I would have played then, and I would have been cringing right now if I told you I sat and played those songs in front of Billy Joe and Guy Clark. <laughs> I was, I'm so glad that I was not capable of playing any music for those guys. <laughs> I'm so glad you told that story. Yeah, that That's was a, uh, crazy, <laughs> crazy funny. But that was the thing, man. As I, I kind of got, I got pulled in just because I was hanging with Emmy at such a young age, and that that kind of, you know, she introduced me to a lot of people, a lot of a lot of my heroes, and we played a lot of gigs with, you know, we play those festivals, and uh, and that's kind of where you you really make friends with a lot of people or those big festivals and get to hang out with a lot of people at one time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that as far as like, um, being able to go to like luck reunion a couple of times and, uh, during South by where the numbers are low, but like the, the artist numbers are high because of how many people were playing and, um, you know, backstage it's, it's a little bit low key as far as, uh, you know, the who's who, but like everyone's relaxed and you can just tell that people are actually having conversations and not just like doing the, the flyby. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what, that's the crazy thing about our business too, is like some of the people I'm probably closest to are people I don't see a lot. You know, mm-hmm. we would see each other, you know, we all live in the same towns, but, but it's like, we don't see each other till we're at a festival hanging out for three or four days and getting up on stage and playing music together. And there's a, there's an interesting camaraderie in that. And it's an interesting way that we 
have friends here, but that's kind of how it works, you know, and some of the people I consider to be my, some of my closest friends, I don't really see that much, you know, but when I do, when I do, it's fun. We have a lot of fun and play a lot of great music. Yeah. You got to have to take them all to Marfa. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'd move down there tomorrow if I could. If there was enough, if there was enough places to work down there, I would. Oh, I know that for sure. Yeah, yeah, I know you do. I know you do, man. But, um, yeah, I think that'll be a, a good spot to, to end it on, right? There. Okay. I mean, well, I hope I gave you something you can yeah, use, no, man. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I, I just don't want to. I can be random. No, no, no. I, I just don't want to take up you know three hours of your time or something. Cause I... All right, that is it for this one. Big thanks to John Randall for taking some time. Be sure to check out the Marfa tapes coming out May 7th, his upcoming solo record. There isn't a date announced just yet, but it's coming pretty soon. And yeah, I'll see y'all next week for more new slang.